Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on unceded Kulin Nations land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. Australia is in the midst of a housing crisis. With the cost of living on the rise and property prices reaching record highs, much of the national discussion has been focused on the issue of home ownership and whether younger Australians will ever be able to break into the property market. In the 2022-23 federal budget, the Morrison Coalition government included an expansion of home buyer supports, with the Prime Minister saying that the best way to help renters was to, quote, help them buy a house, end quote. However, this focus neglects the dire issue of housing security and homelessness for Australians struggling on low incomes, with grassroots and community sector advocates raising serious concerns about inadequate government investment in affordable housing and frontline homelessness supports. This week's show focuses on homelessness and housing insecurity in Australia, something that needs to be front of mind as we approach the 2022 federal election. First up, we are joined by Chloe Cooper, a member of Safe Public Housing Collective, who has lived experience of homelessness in Victoria, including during the COVID-19 pandemic. Chloe shares her lived expertise from these experiences, which form the basis of her analysis of the current homelessness services system and what needs to happen to address homelessness and housing insecurity in Australia. Later on, you'll hear from Professor Libby Porter, a researcher and educator at RMIT University in the Centre for Urban Research. Libby's work focuses on dispossession and displacement in contemporary cities. For now, we'll go to that interview with Chloe. So I became homeless during the pandemic in Melbourne, where my monthly rent in the private market was 125% of my total income. Looking potentially at future debt of tens of thousands of dollars in back pay rent, I decided I'd give notice, but I had nowhere to go. So I contacted the community housing provider and they said I wasn't eligible for assistance. And in fact, actually, when I went to their offices, they turned their lights off on me and pretended they weren't there. And I sat on the floor and cried. So that was a fun experience. A few days later, I reached out to my local community pantry, which had other services available, and they assisted me in the process of applying on the VHR. Many months and several Agencies later, after applying for different transitional housing and not getting anywhere, I was offered some emergency con, but I wasn't allowed to have any belongings and I have two pets, so that was like a big issue for me, so I turned that down. Then a while later, I was offered to move to a far country town and to go into a women's group home. Again, no pets allowed and I said no. Eventually, I ended up living in a derelict building, which caused me massive health issues. I had weekly blood noses. I had skin rashes that I had to get medication for from my GP. And um, this was all due to the building I lived in had asbestos, black mould, constant concrete dust all through the air. There was no heating and there was a lot of security in that home. I had doors, walls missing, parts of floors missing, parts of walls missing. So my sense of safety wasn't great and it was ultimately compromised when a break-in happened one day and so I proceeded to do some couch surfing and just constantly moving around until eventually I got into what is known as the H2H program. Long story short, after 16 months I was offered transitional housing but then the discrimination and the poor treatment began from a community housing provider 
I basically fell into activism for housing justice from my own experiences and just the lack of care and concern I kept facing again and again and again. It was a pretty horrific time for me, but the experience was exacerbated by the lack of action or fundamental care for my safety across organisations, agencies, and if I'm completely honest, the Department of Housing themselves. I had a letter sent directly to a housing minister who took three months to reply and essentially said it was fine to be living in a derelict house. I think he ended the letter with best of luck or something to that effect, like this person has all the resources and all the powers available to them. And they were like, fingers crossed, things improve for you. It was a revelation. My eyes were opened and activism seemed like the only natural progression to expose these systems that, until my own circumstances, I knew very little about. I mean, I think what you've said really highlights that people are living day to day in these circumstances, and yet there is this lack of acknowledgement by government services and also by community services that when people are turned away from a service, they go right back into those conditions. You mentioned some of those frustrations of being bounced around between community organizations that were under-resourced or were just plain unsupportive when you were homeless and in urgent need of shelter. Can you talk us through some of the impacts that this system has had just in general on people experiencing homelessness and the kind of power and influence that these organizations and accommodation providers have over people who are in crisis? You know, in my experience, If you are homeless, you're in crisis mode. Your brain is fired in fight or flight and you just desperately need help. Unfortunately, everything is so convoluted and there's so many hurdles to jump just to get an appointment, to get on a wait list, to get your status confirmed. And then the DFSH tells you like, it's five years on a wait list. It just makes things worse. And then there's feeling the whole time like you're an inconvenience and the providers, the various departments, the housing officers, the housing providers, caseworkers, managers. I mean, there's so many people getting paid very well not to house anyone. It's insanity. Like, they all say the same things in various ways. Like, I've heard people say, the system is broken. There's not enough housing or resources. There's thousands upon thousands of people in your situation. It's like they blame you for being homeless without acknowledging the intersectional issues. I mean, I've been called a drug addict by a housing provider and I've never done drugs in my life. (laughs) Like these agencies have little understanding of the complex trauma that arises from homelessness and some of them have zero compassion, yet they are the gatekeepers. Yeah, and this really awful framing of people who are experiencing acutely distressing circumstances as belligerent and non-compliant is just ridiculous when you think about the level of stress that people who are experiencing homelessness are under. I would be really interested to hear about your thoughts on both Victorian and federal government priorities when it does come to housing and homelessness and what you think some of the most serious shortcomings are at the government level, particularly in light of chronic issues such as things like the vastly blown out public housing waiting list. My response would probably be, like, what priority? Like, low-income and marginalised communities are not prioritised one iota, in my personal opinion. State government has targeted programs that are an attack on public housing and its tenants, forced evictions, demolition of public housing sites, sale of public land for profit to private developers, gentrification of areas that result in displacement, and essentially make communities that had housing homeless. Like the profits and the secret deals that the public doesn't understand and isn't widely talked enough about in the media. The excuses of there's not enough housing or there's too many people on wait lists is a direct result of state government policy. 
And those are sanctioned by the federal government as they often avoid accountability. I mean, does this really surprise anyone? If you demolish and displace people, you are adding to the problem. Any falsehood that the state and federal government are doing things to help people is just optics to win votes, in my view. But voters don't want people to be homeless. They don't want to feel guilt. They don't want to feel guilty for the government's lack of action and inadequate attention to funding public housing. As far as I can tell, the only thing the government are focusing on is saving a dollar and making money off of Australia's poorest demographics, and they're doing it. There's no one stopping them. It's an atrocity, and it's right under everyone's nose. Yeah, and and the framing of homelessness, the idea that it's irresistible, you know, these are forces outside of our control, when actually these are policy choices, these are budgetary choices. 100%. What are some of the improvements that you'd like to see in terms of social service delivery, housing availability and affordability, and also welfare support that would actually make a real difference in the lives of people experiencing homelessness? Well, first, it shouldn't take four or five agencies to manage one property. There's too much fragmentation. The complicated processes, not enough funding where it should go. There's not enough housing, but also not enough facilities. We need more women's shelters. That's just a fact. We need more crisis accommodation. We need more drop-in centres. Wait lists need to be reduced. And policies need to be simplified, like period. Where's the state-run emergency complex? I mean, we need a stadium-sized complex to deal with the numbers. Also, community housing policies are corrupt. I'm sorry. They're double-dipping into pensions and income of the poor is unjust. Like, housing needs to be capped at no more than 25%. In fact, maybe less. I mean, I'm going to sound like a radical, but I also think there should be some fee-free housing. Revolutionary, I know, but if you want people to get out of poverty and not just exist in a prison of financial oppression, you have to create initiatives to help people rise up. We aren't doing that in this country. As far as welfare... It's not supportive. It's oppressive. I've heard people call it poverty payments, and that's what they are. Like, why is someone on a disability payment not getting minimum wage income? If you have mountains of paperwork saying someone has diagnosed disorders, health issues, or physical and mental disabilities, and their capacity for work is limited by that, why are they being punished? You essentially have a whole demographic of people who are enslaved to a lifetime of poverty who with proper financial support, could have a better quality of life, which in turn feeds back into a better society and better outcomes for the economy, if that's something you're interested in. I mean, I believe in this country it it is possible and it is fundamentally just to do these things. Yeah, absolutely. And the nature of individualized responsibility where it becomes about turning the blame back around on people that are experiencing immense hardship and deprivation. It really is something that requires a massive structural change. And speaking of that, what kind of action do you think that housed folks should be taking in solidarity with people experiencing homelessness, including in the lead up to the federal election? Oh, <laughs> good question. Well, I think for people that are housed, you know, people that are secure, don't experience these issues themselves, I think they should still engage in discussions, learn about the issues people face and, you know, a show of empathy. We need to change the narrative about homelessness in this country. Housing is a human right. 
people are not homeless because they're a failure and it's not always their fault or in their control. There's this rhetoric about inequality that people got themselves there. But have you seen what's happening in the housing affordability in this country? Cost of living is affecting millions and many of those currently housed are only a mortgage repayment or eviction notice away from a similar fate. When you hear the true, and I mean like the complete in-depth stories and experiences of what people have gone through, whether fleeing domestic violence, fleeing parental abuse or coercive control, discrimination. And yes, some people experience loss of income, they miss a paycheck and then find themselves in this war of economic disparity. What I'm trying to say is we as a society must protect all people, not just create protections for those with financial buffers. Going forward this year as an activist for change and push for equality for the disadvantaged, I'm organising a peaceful protest on May 1st at 12pm at Parliament Steps in Melbourne. Known to many people as May Day, the International Workers' Day of May 1st is a very significant, important date, recognised internationally. I encourage people to join the protest and take part in the May Day Rally, which will be convening at Treasury Gardens, which is beside Parliament House. So if people want to come down to Parliament Steps 12 o'clock, May 1st, show solidarity for both causes and tell the powers in Parliament we want action on homelessness, public housing and workers' rights. We want funding for services and more affordable housing and we're not going to take this lying down. You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station. You just heard from Chloe Cooper, a member of Safe Public Housing Collective who has lived experience of homelessness. Joining us now is Professor Libby Porter, a researcher and educator at RMIT University's Center for Urban Research. Her work focuses on dispossession and displacement in contemporary cities, and she's here to discuss Australia's housing affordability crisis with a focus on the importance of public housing. I thought we might begin by speaking about the federal budget 2022-23 to to provide some recent context about the state of government investment in mitigating Australia's crises of housing affordability, insecurity, and also homelessness. And listeners might be familiar with Prime Minister Scott Morrison's comments about the best way to help renters being to help them buy a house. Um, I'm hoping to get your thoughts on how far you see budget measures like the expansion of the Home Guarantee Scheme going to actually address the root causes of housing affordability and insecurity. It's a great question and, and gosh, wasn't it an offensive thing that the Prime Minister said about that and there have been so many other comments made um, in the media recently by leaders and politicians who just display a real lack of being in touch with reality about what it's like to try and manage in, a, in this housing crisis. So to sort of give your listeners a bit of context, the Home Guarantee Scheme that has been expanded really through the recently announced budget has an associated expansion of what's called NFIC, which is the kind of financial infrastructure that is effectively a policy that allows community housing organisations to borrow at a sort of decreased rate effectively to be able to build community housing, to build social housing. So what these two schemes do in terms of addressing, as you said, the root causes of housing affordability and insecurity is really not very much. The Home Guarantee Scheme is all about home ownership. It's about giving people access through a sort of lower deposit, like a 5% kind of deposit. But that just ignores the very, very many people, tens of thousands of people, who will simply never be able to get even a 5% deposit together because they live paycheck to paycheck or they don't have paychecks or there's no security of their income. So it really ignores the deep housing 
housing stress that people find themselves in currently and really also ignores the fact that people find themselves in extreme housing stress even with mortgages, particularly if interest rates start to rise. So really something like the Home Guarantee Scheme kind of deepens the conditions that produce a housing crisis in the first place, which is the fact that we treat housing in Australia like a commodity. It's a wealth creation asset in these policy terms, not a fundamental human right. And that's really a huge part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And schemes like this also totally fail to take into account things like the cost of living. Now, I know that was addressed separately through a one-off Social Security top-up in this budget, but my goodness, that is not adequate. Anyway, when we talk about affordable housing in Australia, I'm wondering what we actually mean, because this question seems pretty relevant given that our Minister for Social Services, Anne Rustin, has repeatedly denied that there's a need to even define the concept of poverty in Australia. So, Housing affordability is also one of those nebulous terms that really gets thrown around with very little substance. Completely agree. Of course, housing affordability at its kind of most basic idea is simply looking at the relationship between incomes and cost of housing, right? When we talk about affordable housing, generally speaking, that's put forward as a kind of category of housing that often sits alongside social housing as some kind of signal of subsidy, lower market rents, that that kind of thing. In my view, affordable housing is a kind of complete misnomer. It's like a veneer that's put over a housing policy to make it look shinier and better. Because really, if you think about it, everyone should be in housing that they can afford in the basic sense that every person should be able to secure their shelter in a manner that is affordable to their budget, that suits their budget. So high-income earners and the elite all get to have affordable housing because they have enormous discretionary spend on their housing. And that's why the measure of housing stress is when a household who finds themselves in the kind of bottom range of income brackets, we normally talk about the bottom 40% of incomes, are paying more than 30% of that income in housing. So people who are paying more than 30% for their housing in those lower income brackets will find that 30% very stressful. So this whole idea of affordable housing is a kind of misnomer. And to add to the kind of policy confusion and, and the public confusion, I think that definitions differ really across the country and around the world. At its best, affordable housing is actually linked directly to income. In other words, housing is made affordable by not charging the household more rent than they can afford. So perhaps capping it, like in public housing, at 25% of a household's income. But really what happens in housing policies, whenever anyone hears, uh, encourage your listeners to think about this when they hear the term affordable housing, it simply means a subsidy at a percentage of market rate, often around 80%. So if housing is already unaffordable, 80% of unaffordable is still unaffordable. So it doesn't really help um, on that front. A couple of interesting other examples, listeners might be aware that in Victoria recently, the government did a bit of a backflip on its new social and affordable housing contribution, which would have tried to ensure a contribution from new developments to put into a fund that would build social and affordable housing. Now, it was welcome that we were trying to go there, but of course, the development industry didn't like it, and so it isn't proceeding. So affordable housing is really just a kind of cover to build more market housing, a bit like the housing guarantee scheme that we talked about just before, and does relatively little to relieve uh, severe housing stress. 
I think this really leads quite neatly into concerns about public housing. And you've done extensive research on public housing and the importance of increasing this specific type of housing stock. And in the Victorian case, there's been the big housing build announcement. And you mentioned Mm. that there was that backflip about, you know, how these sorts of initiatives might be funded. Can you tell us about some of the concerns with the Victorian government's decision to prioritise both community and public housing in that big housing build and about some Mm. of the differences between these types of housing and how this plan and possibly analogous plans across other states and territories actually work to address some of the concerns we've been speaking about? Maybe let's start with some of this kind of slippery language. There's so much of it in the housing policy world, so to just help your listeners understand. So public housing refers to housing provided for low-income people that is owned and the tenancies are managed by a government, by a state government. So rents are capped usually at 25% of income, certainly in Victoria. And actually public housing is the most secure tenure in the Australian housing system. So in that sense, you know, we should really value it. It's a really important aspect of our housing system. We shouldn't sort of denigrate it in the way that we it is so common. Community housing is when a private, not-for-profit community housing provider owns the dwelling and or manages the tenancy. And rents in community housing are usually around 30% of income and sometimes more, remembering that 30% spend on housing for people on low incomes is where housing stress begins. So people in community housing are often already in housing stress. And social housing is the umbrella term that refers to both of those things, both public housing and community housing. But in Australia, at least, is increasingly used when governments would like to do a kind of crafty slate of hand to hide the privatisation of public housing. So they use social housing as a term to make it look as if we're building more public housing when actually we're not. And a really good example of exactly how this is occurring is unfolding in Victoria at the moment, as you said, Priya, where the government is spending quite large amounts of money. It's a very big program. If we look at just the first phase of that and the first stage of that big housing build, it was very much focused on existing public housing estates. So using land and assets already owned by the then Department of Housing and Human Services, now Homes Victoria, and was focused on sort of demolishing and rebuilding with a mix of market housing, often labelled affordable, and social housing, i.e. the cover for community housing. So in all of the numbers that the government put out about what the big housing bills would deliver in its first phase, it made some claims about adding 500 new units to the existing stock of social housing in Victoria. This was the number used in all the marketing and announcements to sort of talk about how new housing was going to be delivered. But what people weren't told was that 446 units were being demolished to make way for those 500 new units. So really the net gain in terms of actual numbers of dwellings that you get in extra is only 54. And that first phase of the big housing build cost in the order or is costing in the order of $532 million. So that's $532 million to deliver us 54 additional homes on top of what had already existed, which is pretty expensive and quite poor public policy outcomes because none of those will be public housing. They're all this community housing form of social housing. Community housing has its place, but it shouldn't be at the expense of public housing. So it's effectively privatisation by stealth. So there are similar strategies and programs elsewhere in Australia, probably other good examples in New South Wales where the government is achieving you know, similar kind of tricky 
tricky policy manoeuvres and achieving privatisation of public housing through similar kinds of instruments. And really, I think the sort of sad reality is that none of this will really address housing insecurity. So if we look at the growth in community housing over the last 10 to 15 years, which has been substantial, obviously come from a small base. Governments have made lots of claims over that time about how the growth in community housing will end homelessness, will address you know, increasing rates of homelessness and housing insecurity. One might imagine that we would have seen an appreciable difference in the rates of people experiencing homelessness you know, during that time. And instead, we've seen exactly the opposite. We have rapidly increasing numbers of people experiencing homelessness. We have very large and expanding housing wait lists and very significant growth in the number of people experiencing housing stress, spending way more than they can afford on housing simply to put a roof over their head. Definitely. And, you know, zooming back out to the national level, we are coming up to the next federal election this year. And I was hoping to get your thoughts on housing affordability and access plans being put forward by the major political parties and whether you think we are at all on the right track to addressing any of those issues in some of the political platforms that we've seen. It's a great question, too, and uh, my answer is a depressing one, and that's because I think there's a, there's a kind of political consensus in Australia on housing across what you might call a sort of traditional political divide between, say, Labor and Liberal parties, and that consensus is that housing is an individual asset that creates wealth. And so people should purchase their housing themselves and really the only policy differences are around how to provide support for people to purchase housing themselves, whether that be in the private rental market or in home ownership. So just think of the phrases that we use all the time. We see them all the time in the media when we talk about housing. We talk about, you know, getting a leg up on the housing ladder, for example. These are kind of the standard terms in which we discuss housing. So then we get policies like private rental subsidies where households are provided extra cash so that they can go and access private rental. We get first homeowners grants such as the housing guarantee scheme and so on. So the assumption is that housing is like a thing that you achieve. It's an asset that reflects and adds to your personal wealth and status. And all of that just profoundly misunderstands and undermines the fact that housing is a right. So we've kind of already framed housing in this really problematic way, I think. And there's a broad political consensus that we've signed up to. And we really need to rethink that from the ground up. And I don't see a lot of evidence from the major parties that that is happening. The housing policy world is bewildering and confusing. So, you know, really want to try and encourage people to try and understand a little bit more, especially some of these terms that get used like social housing, affordable housing. Renters and Housing Union and Safe Public Housing Collective have great resources on their web pages, get involved, join up on their socials, come along to meetings, you know, join and get involved. Some of us are trying to organise a little call to action on public housing. You can join us on the steps at Parliament House on May the 1st around midday. Come and join your voice to the call for real investment in public housing and properly addressing housing stress and insecurity. That was an interview with Professor Libby Porter from RMIT University's Centre for Urban Research, speaking about the urgent need to address Australia's housing affordability crisis. Earlier in the show, you heard from Chloe Cooper, a member of Safe Public Housing Collective, who shared her lived expertise from her experiences of homelessness in Victoria, including during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's all we've got time for today on Women on the Line. Thank you so much for listening. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network.
and this is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kabara, and our past programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.